Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Coming up in this episode, Martin Osterdahl, the new executive supervisor of the Eurovision Song Contest, cancelled this year for the first time in its 65-year history due to the coronavirus pandemic, talks about the European Broadcasting Union's plans to future-proof the event to ensure it never has to come off air again. But first... Axel Arno, Commissioning Editor for Documentaries at Swedish Public Broadcaster SVT and Chairman of the European Broadcasting Union's Documentary Group, discusses the ups and downs of online festivals as the digital version of Sunny Side of the Dock gets underway. The documentary veteran spoke with Clive Whittingham about the situation in Sweden, why he's keen to ensure travel restrictions don't mean a retreat away from tackling international issues in favour of domestic ones, tips for producers coming to pitch in projects and how he and his EBU public broadcaster colleagues must continue to lead the fight against fake news. I am Axel Arno. I commission films, documentary films for SVT, which is a public broadcaster in Sweden. Uh, I'm also the chairperson of something called the EBU Documentary Group, uh, which is a network of all the European Broadcasting Union's commissioning editors for documentary. So we pitch and we speak and we have meetings twice a year. We actually have a meeting on this Sunnyside edition. And like everybody else, we're now going digital. It's fun. We'll see what happens. So we've heard over here, there's been a lot of talk about, about Sweden, actually, as one of the countries that, that didn't lock down quite as severely uh, as all the others. I mean, how has it changed how you do business day to day? Have you been able to, to carry on as normal? What's been the situation with you guys? Well, our situation is pretty much the same anyway, because we have quite tough guidelines. So most people who don't have to work at the office are, are more or less obliged to work from home. And in my particular company, SVT, everyone who doesn't have to be there is advised to stay home. So we're working from home, almost all of us. And then um, the Swedish authorities actually say that, you know, you have to keep 150 centimeters distance. As long as you do that, you can go to restaurants and you can go to school and, and you can be out and about. And I would say that most Swedes are positive to that strategy. Having said that, you know, the, the, the numbers don't lie. We have much more dead people than our neighboring countries that had a much more severe lockdown. But um, there's the debate going on now. Uh, I don't know what to think because I'm not an expert. Um, what the experts say is that these things will level out in maybe six months, maybe 12 months, and all the countries will have sort of the same rate of infection. So who knows? I'm not an expert, uh, but there, I can tell you that there's a very severe debate here going on at the moment. It's starting to, get, to be very political. From an SVT point of view, have you lost a lot of productions that had to go into to lockdown or on hold? And, and what problems is that creating for you schedule-wise as we move forward? Well, domestically, we've been able to do most of our shows, of course, with the exception of big things with audiences and uh, other types of programming. I think most documentaries are in production still. There have been lockdowns for documentary series. For example, we have been following Midwives. That was impossible to, to continue to do. And there was a couple of other very intimate things that, that went down. Uh, I, I deal mostly with international stories and I see 
a lot of them are still coming. I mean, current affairs stories will still be produced. And I think the documentary makers have been very, very innovative and, and found new ways of doing their job. Uh, I, I don't see any dip in the flow of films coming towards autumn, but I expect it to be a dip uh, come maybe next spring or or so, because I know that there's very diff- it's very difficult to make you know huge international films. We have to do travel, we have to follow people around for a long time. Um, so so we'll just have to wait and see. But the documentary market has has been quite full during the last years. Uh, there's a lot to choose from. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I've been for for one. I've been very active the last weeks. Uh, I've I've been to Docs Barcelona, Sheffield Hot Docs, CoPro, um, all these virtual festivals. And uh, the bad and the good thing is that you can you can access everything and also at the same time, which is a bit stressful. So I'm I'm right now I'm looking at a list of you know 35 possible products that I might be interested in in the same week. So, so it's, it's quite it's quite special, uh, but also uh, in t- very intense and and quite fun to be honest. But I really hope that 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 there's not going to be a, a big big dip in production. Um, I, I now when countries are are opening up, people are welcome here. Uh, Swedes are of course not welcome everywhere yet. I think we will be. Um, so um, I think you will see a delay in production, but I think it's picking up now. You you mentioned the the um, the festivals and the markets there. You're obviously a very well known face at uh, pitching forums and things like that. They can't happen physically at the moment. How are you finding the digital alternatives? And when we are allowed to get back on the plane and the train and everything else and start travelling again, do you think that those markets will endure in the same way, or do you think people will have seen these other ways? And like you say, you've seen 35 films this week. So do you think it will go back to normal or not? I don't think we're ever going to go back the exact way we did before. I think uh, traveling will be something different when we come back to this. I don't think it's going to feel the same to be on an airplane. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I think it's going to be costly. And I, I think uh, most festivals will be, will be more affected or, or, or uh, conscious about flying and traveling. So, so for some festivals, I think it works pretty well. And some pitches works pretty well when it comes to uh, Zoom or Teams or wherever you are. I think it, but it 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 really can't it it, it can't. Um, one of these meetings online, it works fine as long as you already know each other. I think because when it comes to the end of the day, you are quite susceptible to you know expressions facial expressions you know uh, things like that you really need to feel the vibe in the in the conversation which is kind of hard on zoom uh, if you already know the person uh, it's easier because you would have done that before so i find uh, people i know i find it quite easy to be on on teams with or, or zoom I, I actually it's a lot better than telephone calls um, and um, it's been surprisingly well organized, these pitching sessions. I, it, they are more exhausting. At the same time, they're more effective. So I like it. Uh, I don't think it's going to be forever, but I think it's going to be a very good alternative to live pitches. And uh, most of these live places will have to think whether it's better to do it online 
where we'll probably they will probably have more attendees and uh, it co- costs less money and then the big pitching sessions will probably be live and i think idfa still you know has to be live i think hot dogs would have to be live the bigger ones and the smaller ones can go online and the discussion about going to mip has been for a long time especially mip doc why why are we going to this video tech i mean it feels so old school to go to a you know computer and watch tv for two days if you can have everything online so uh, i think that will probably be changed until something different and then you know the whole mip they have to think they have to rethink their whole structure i think from a commissioning point of view would you you obviously work internationally as you said would you be reticent or think twice about commissioning a project or getting involved in a co-production that involves a lot of international traveling and filming because obviously the, you know we risk second waves and further lockdowns and things like that would you look for more you know domestic or single location projects hard question that because i mean we need to know what goes on in the world uh so uh if me starting to do do more domestic things would leave the field open to you know dictators and <laughs> and big naughty politicians on the right to you know do terrible things to their populations no i don't want to do that i i i think in in the name of democracy we need to be out there all the time so i wouldn't hesitate but of course safety first we would really need to think twice about safety measures in every project we do and i think we are at the moment reviewing all safety measures in all documentary production and would you uh, are you intending to commission and buy and co-produce a lot of projects about covid and pandemics and things like that or is the you know how we got here and how it all happened or is the the thinking that the audience might be a bit sick and tired of it by the time they come around Oh, funny you ask that because we have this special joint COVID session on Sunnyside, and it's a bit of an experiment. So, in EBU, we received loads of COVID uh, submissions, of course, and we decided to open up and do a special COVID nineteen session. So we have we are presenting six different projects um, on the twenty fifth of June, and it's open to everyone. So go on, you know, go there, have a look. Uh, I think there there's six really strong projects, and um, uh, why not? Why not co-produce these films? Because I think the audience has a, an enormous appetite for these films. We can see that. Uh, there's not, you know, of course, it's some fatigue. I think m- there might be more fatigue actually among commissioning editors than than, than among the audience. Um, who knows? Uh, but there, there's a hunger to know more about the COVID disease, and uh, you know, to feel. It's a global disease. We need we need to tackle it from all different angles. So no, the answer is no. I, I would not hesitate to come in to more projects. Of course, maybe not ten, but two, three, four, five. You know why not? If they're very different, if they have high quality and cross genre, I'm sure. I'm sure we will do that. And do you think if if restrictions are uh, go on for a long time on on filming and restrict things like being able to go in and interview people for documentaries, do you think the audience six, nine, twelve, eighteen months down the line will be forgiving of you if you had to have 
your talking heads in your documentary over Zoom, for example, or and that that production quality isn't quite there. Do you think the audience will be understanding with that, or or not? Well, I certainly I certainly would hope so because the, we have no other option. I'm I've been talking to producers about this right now. I have no problem publishing films with sort of less filmic quality because of the situation. I I would think that the audience have the same view, but of course. If, if if an artist or or a really cinematic filmmaker you know wants to tell a story uh, and they refuse to do these uh, sort of low budget interviews, that's another thing. But to answer your question, I think that the audience will forgive it, especially the TV audience, cinematic. Who knows? It 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 all boils down to what people are saying. Are you commissioning and, and co-producing, or are you, are you intending to commission and co-produce as much as you were, or do, are you going to lean more on acquisitions of finished products for now until things get back on their feet? No, I, there's no change. I, I'd, I'd say I actually commission a little bit more, but that's also because I want to I wanna support the industry. I don't want to wait for the finished product that much. So I'm taking a little bit more risk at the moment. It's always the $64,000 question, what are you looking <laughs> for? And it's, it's hard to answer. But, you know, if you could give advice to producers that are going to be seeing you over the, the coming weeks and months, what would it be? Well, since I have a quite uh, special taste and I, I look after two slots that are very specific, um, I can say if you have anything that smells in international investigative current affairs, uh, which is fact-based and uh, and has solid journalism. That's one thing that I would always listen to. And the other slot that I look after is um, the best documentary films in the world. So if you have one of those, please come to me. <laughs> um, yeah, jokingly aside, I mean, there there is uh, quite some competition. It's cinematic docs. It's it's the big films that we're all chasing, including you know, Netflix and Amazon and all those. Of course, they have loads more of more cash than we do, but we are in the market for big films as well. Especially, I'd say, the non-American films, because the American films are so heavily into Netflix and Amazon and Apple and, and Hulu. We would look for, you know, the big European films. And I also think that we as public service broadcasters have a, a responsibility there to support and to initiate, you know, these very ambitious cinematic theatrical documentaries from the European market that can be up there and aim for the same prices and festivals that the American films do. We hear, we hear I mean, fake news is just a, a you know, it's a dire term that, that I hate bringing up, but we, we hear so much about it at the moment. And there's all sorts of surveys, particularly in the UK, about how trust in the media and trust in journalism is, is on the slide. You have, like you say, a, an investigative current affairs strand that you commission into. Is, is that quite demoralising to read things like that? And, and how do you fight back and, and re-establish that trust? Well, I have a simple answer to that. I mean, the only way to fight fake news is to make real news with undisputable facts. And uh, the more thorough you are, the, the less open you are for attacks from you know, the fake news side of things. And fake news is, I mean, these people's opinions mostly, and they don't like what we do and they call us fake news. But the only way to fight back is to do more real news about the people calling us fake news. 
and tell it, tell it like it is in the most honest way that you can. Also, I think it's, it's important to be open to the other side. So, you know, if, if I'm saying that people are accusing us of fake news, we need to talk to those people and say, what, what do you mean? Um, what is fake news? Why? So we can, have a, we can have a discussion. I mean, some of them is impossible to have discussions with, but I, but I gladly have discussions with these people. But um, some of them are very hard to reach because everything you say turns into a conspiracy. Yeah. Is that situation the same? The same is it as in Sweden as as we see it is in the US and the, in the UK? What, what is- I would yeah, I would I would say that they're not so loud here. I think, and they don't have guns. You know? <laughs> so, so but but you know you have you have you know the Twitter trolls. Of course, they're here, and uh, we have alternative media, and they're and they're trying their best to destabilize and demoralize us. And of course, Russia will be here, and and you know, try to make Sweden look bad in any way. That's part of the game. We just need to fight back. And, and how, how do you do that, both from an SVT point of view and with your EBU hat on, obviously representing public broadcasters all over, all over Europe? How, what is the, I mean, public service broadcasting does seem to have come out of this pandemic quite well with its reputation in hand. Is that the start of the fight back? And, and how do you? <laughs> I, think that, I, think we're, I think the fight back is constant. But we have to live with, with you know, this this um, extreme world that we are now in uh, it's it's here to stay and and we need to adjust to it but we can never you know uh, succumb in this uh, fight we have to stand strong and and be strong together um so i'm fighting back as much as i can uh, all the time but as i said you know be true to what you know and do it thoroughly and fake news will die Axel Arno from SVT. The Eurovision Song Contest, this year scheduled to take place in Rotterdam in May, was cancelled for the first time in its 65-year history due to the coronavirus pandemic. Martin Osterdahl, a veteran producer for Swedish public broadcaster SVT, was named Eurovision's new executive supervisor in January and was due to begin working with his predecessor on the contest in April before taking over after the planned broadcast in May. He spoke with Karolina Kaminska about how the European Broadcasting Union, which runs the event, is working to ensure it never has to come off air again, and why he thinks live event programming is making a comeback following the recent surge in scripted demand. What happened in 2020 was that the pandemic came as a, as a surprise. I mean, unfortunately, crises crises always seem to come <laughs> by surprise. Uh, as part of being an organiser of a large live event you always have backup plans of course but no one had really foreseen this kind of situation and um we weren't able to quick quickly adjust to any any other change other than to cancel the show which was very unfortunate now looking at 2021 we've uh, we've been living we've all been living with this situation for for more than a year and it's it's uh, we're going to do everything we can uh, to bring the contest back uh, regardless of, of uh, what the scenario will will look like in may next year we uh, we have to make sure we have a contest. We have to make sure we have a winner, a winning song. We have to make sure that we have a handover to a new, new host broadcaster that uh, completes the Eurovision year cycle. Uh, because this is, our, this is our DNA. This is what we're, this, this, that, that's what we are. Uh, and, and as you know, the year cycle involves a lot of national selections and a lot of other things around the, the Eurovision Song Contest. And it's vital to keep, keep all of that intact. And how do you think the coronavirus pandemic will reshape 
and change both the Eurovision Song Contest, Contest itself, but also the wider talent show genre overall, especially given the fact they rely so heavily on crowds and audiences. Now, I think it's really important that all of us that organise large live events like this, uh, even, even, if this even if we come back at, in a sort of A scenario, which we all hope that we will do, so, so come back with the Song Contest in the shape and form that we, that we love it and we know it, I think we will, we will have to realize that the world has changed with the pandemic and it, it, we, we won't be going back to a, to a normal in, in all aspects, just, just as things were before the pandemic. So I think we will be, we'll be asked a lot about what changes we've made, what decisions we've and how we've adapted to, to the new reality. And, and uh, we have to look at things that we've always looked at, but we have to look at them even more closely now uh, with regards to, to uh, sustainability of the event. And, uh, and with sustainability, I'm, I'm not only referring to environmental aspects, but, but you know, to, to financial sustainability and to make sure that we have a, a co-production setup that, that, is, um, that is sort of proof for, for, for generations to come. Uh, this is a very long-running tradition. It's the most loved uh, tradition of music television. And um, we need to make sure that it can carry on for, for decades to come. And looking ahead to the future as, as the, the Eurovision Song Contest's new executive supervisor, what is your vision for the future of the show? I think the, what we do uh, at the EBU and with the reference group and in the role of, of my role as the executive supervisor, the challenge is always to keep the song contest popular, um, but also to, to keep it sustainable so that that popularity can, can last. Uh, so that's what we'll continue to do. Right now, the focus is, of course, to come back strong in Rotterdam 2021 uh, and to bring back the element of contest and competition and, and all these things that I mentioned before that were dearly missed this year. Um, but also to make sure that we keep being relevant to young audiences, to keep making sure that our uh, show is, 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 is popular. So that's sort of that's the basic focus. But but apart from that, looking further ahead, I think there's huge opportunities for, for the Eurovision Song Contest in a in a landscape where live events and sort of broadcasting, live broadcasting of, of television and entertainment has, has suffered a decline. But I think the, the big live events stand very strong in that in that landscape. And I think the Eurovision certainly does. And I think we will continue to, to uh, <clears throat> find ways of developing our, our viewership and our reach through new digital means and, and growing the brand forward. Uh, it has, it has to me, it has the potential of being a, a global entertainment super brand. Uh, and that's what we're going to continue to, uh, to work at. And changes to some of the contest's rules are going to be implemented for next year's edition. Can you talk about these rule changes? Yes. Uh, I mean, the rules are revised every year. So, so this year, of course, the focus was to make sure that we had a setup uh, that enabled us to come back with the contest next year. So the, most of the, the uh, rule changes this year have, have been to that effect and to, to uh, increase the, the scope of what we call contingency planning for the contest so that we can adapt and we can change how we organize the event and also the, the actual format of the shows if we have to. We know there is a real risk that there will be continued restrictions in terms of, of uh, social distancing measures or, or travel restrictions and so on. So we have, to, we have to create templates of scenarios for different situations that might arise and, and, and work with that very, very uh, diligently throughout the year to, to be able to change when needed and to change into a scenario that, that, we, can, that we can deliver. 
So the rule changes have been changed so that we can have that wider scope of, of modifications and, and, that we are, and that we are sort of strong in solidarity to really come back with the contest. And, and, and I mean, in, in the relationship with all the stakeholders here, which are the participating broadcasters, the EBU and the host broadcaster and all the, all the partners, of course. But um, we've also introduced a, a new rule with regards to backing vocals this year. And uh, that's also in the light of sustainability and contingency, but it's also uh, in an effort to continue making the song contest modern and relevant that I mentioned before. It's always these two things that we have to sort of keep in balance and, and, and in parallel to make it popular, keeping modern, but also sustainable. So um, in, in, the pre, in, in the rules previously, there's been a ban on having harmonies on the backing track. And we know that uh, because of the cancellation of 2020 and um, because of the repercussions of the pandemic, a lot of partners and a lot of uh, broadcasters are suffering financially. So we would like to introduce this year the option of having harmonies on the backing track. Uh, this this uh, enables a, a whole new set of creative ideas on how to perform the act live on stage, which is super interesting. But it, and it also enables delegations to reduce costs in, in traveling. Um, and it also reduces some of the burdens on the host broadcaster with regards to enabling the production of, of, uh, of live backing vocalists on or off stage. That's the situation often is. But, and uh, we've had a very, very good discussion about this uh, in the reference group in preparing for this decision. We've thought a lot about how to make sure that the song contest always feels authentic and that the performance feels uh, authentic, and, and also that it's fair, that, that uh, everyone competes uh, on, on, a, on a level playing field. And I believe that the, uh, the, the rule change that we're introducing this year uh, has been designed and worded in a way that enables that. And what are your expectations for the future of the, the talent show genre on the whole? Um, live event programming has always traditionally done well, but some shows in particular have, have suffered declines in recent years. So do you think that that is, is a reflection of a certain type of programme or a certain change in, in viewing tastes? Uh, I, think, I think it's been, you know, as, as always in our business, it's driven by technological changes and a, and a, and a, sh and a, and a shift from, from the old technology to the new technology. And the new platforms were very quick to, um, to focus and adapt to, um, to uh, scripted, to drama. Um, and that's been, that's sort of paved the way for the Netflix and the HBO, um, Amazon, etc. All, all these new sort of streaming platforms. We're seeing now increasingly that they're also commissioning non-scripted uh, in, in, a, in a larger extent. I believe also in, for the public service partnership, there's always, there's also been, because of this change, uh, an, an increased priority in the scripted production. But I'm, I'm also seeing there that it's sort of swinging back slightly more in favor of the non-scripted. And I think that live-based, music-based entertainment uh, is great for gathering families. It's great for gathering people in, all over the country. It's great for, for, for uniting people across borders as well. Uh, so I certainly believe that there is a comeback uh, for, for, for these kind of shows. But I think as a result of the, of the paradigm shift in, in, uh, in distribution, it, it has had to take a step back for a while. But I do think there's a, there's a future for them. Martin Osterdahl from the Eurovision Song Contest. 
That's all for this episode. Remember, if you'd like to share your story of coping with COVID-19 with the international TV industry, email us using the address press at c21media.net. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow, but in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening.